Hello and welcome to Talking Cop from Bankers for Net Zero with me, Naomi Kerbel. In this special edition of the podcast, we welcomed an expert panel and a live studio audience to discuss how to achieve a just transition and how to scale nature-based solutions. is going to be talking about green finance, uh, how the UK is developing and implementing innovative financial solutions. We'll also cover that the scepticism around nature-based solutions, um, the accusations of greenwashing. Uh, but first of all, as I did before, I'd like to just ask each panellist to introduce themselves. And if you were at COP, or even if you weren't, what were your takeaways from this COP and going into the next year? Tom. Uh, so I'm Tom Gegg. I work at Palladium, uh, which has a partnership with the UK's national parks to uh, catalyse investment into storing nature across the parks. I wasn't a cop, um, but for me, the most interesting thing that happened there was the breakthrough agenda, which was actually launched in Glasgow last year, um, which is all about how can we catalyse tipping points uh, by massively scaling up uh, green climate tech like heat pumps, uh, wind turbines, electric cars. And I think some of the ideas around how to, to create this change and really accelerate scale-up are exciting. Great. Hi, everyone. My name's Heather Mackay, and I lead the UK finance team at E3G. And E3G is a climate policy think tank um, with a, another acronym for you all to remember at the end of this. <laughs> um, I do apologise for my voice. As well as a Glaswegian accent, I've, got, I've had a cold for the past few days. So um, just put your hand up if you can't understand me, and then I'll just ignore you. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I actually wasn't at COP either, but I was following closely from home. And I think I've got two real takeaways from COP this year. I think firstly, there really seems to be quite a significant um, level of recognition about the need to change the way that we think about finance. So a number of high level bodies, including the high level expert group and the UN Secretary General, called for high, um, high credibility, um, non-greenwash commitments from the private sector and set out some guidance for that. The Transition Plan Task Force that Brendan mentioned earlier also did a very similar thing. And um, Songwei and Stern came out and really called for the fact that we have to really change the financial architecture by which we um, allocate capital and, and assess risk um, uh, to um, account for climate. Um, I think the other thing I'd mention is that there were a number of high-level commitments on nature as well. So, um, and there's so many acronyms, but it's the Forest, the Forest and Climate Leadership Partnership was launched to tackle deforestation, which is great. Loss and Damage Fund was launched. There's no detail yet. There's no money in it yet, apart from from Scotland. So, hmm. <laughs> but um, it's a really positive step to recognising the fact we do have to start accounting for the impacts of climate change that are happening now. There were pledges, though, weren't there? Pledges. Right. No, uh, but no think, actual dosh. Yeah, okay, I think it's a lot of rhetoric, as we see a lot, and a lot of pledging, but we need to actually start to think about the ways we get money on the table. Um, and I think the final thing I'll say that I was really pleased with at COP was actually um, our COP president, Alok Sharma, said at this opening of the UK Pavilion event that without finance, nothing that we need to get done will get done. And actually, I, I took that really to heart. And I think it's really <coughs> G'd me up after a long year. Thanks. <laughs> so. um, thanks. I'm Maggie Fitzherbert. Um, and when I'm not dropping things out of my pockets on stage, I'm advisory manager at ZSL, uh, Zoological Society of London. We're a global conservation NGO, um, and we have a programme of sustainable business and finance, um, which is where I sit. Uh, and we are looking at ways in which the private sector and the finance sector are impacting climate and biodiversity. So we're looking at things like uh, sort of biodiversity performance within investment funds, and also how uh, kind of supply chain dynamics are driving land use change and biodiversity as well. 
So uh, we had a presence at COP. Um, I personally wasn't there, but we had representatives from our policy team and also from the Institute of Zoology, which is our academic branch. Um, and having spoken to them in the preparations for this, uh, the, the main take-homes um, are around the fact that the biodiversity and the climate conversations are still happening in silos and they're not integrated. Um, we've been pushing for years to have these uh, two different subjects uh, kind of come together for solutions that cover both. Um, and although there was kind of some of the right noises being made, it wasn't really integrated into the, into the policies, into the pledges and into the mechanisms. So I think there's still quite a long way to go in that respect. Um, it's been said before that what's good for biodiversity is also good for climate, and the same isn't necessarily true the other way around. So uh, as we'll come to more when we're talking about nature-based solutions, um, we can't just be focusing on carbon with regards to nature-based solutions. We need to be looking at the role that they play in the broader landscape restoration, ecosystem restoration, which will have benefits across society, economies, um, and also the sort of need to improve biodiversity to sustain all of the futures of people and economies. So with that, I'll pass it back. Heather, you referenced uh, the COP president, Alex Sharma, there. And another thing he said was th that this is the decade that represents that critical window. And he actually talked about an inter interdependent biodiversity, land degradation, and the climate crisis. How do you see nature-based solutions fitting into that path to net zero? Well, I have to say, I think you covered it really, you started the conversation off really well because our entire economy is predicated on a stable climate and a stable environment around us. And actually, a lot of the ways we've been pricing um, in risk haven't accounted for that. So now I think that, um, you know, it's, 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 we're really seeing a turn of the, the dial at the moment in recognition of the fact that we have to start thinking about the climate in which our financial system exists um, in order to ensure its longevity and productivity. Um, and I've forgotten the second half of your question. It was, um, it was how do you see nature-based solutions fitting into that path? Well, I think, again, I agree with you that... Um, Nature-based solutions are one aspect of how we need to protect nature. I think that um, it's evident, I mean, some estimates say that looking at the UK, we need to scale up finance to about 5.6 billion every single year to protect the environment. And I think we all can appreciate that's not all gonna come from the state. It's just not possible after um, the constrained fiscal environments that most economies are finding themselves in now after the Ukraine and Russia war and the COVID pandemic. So we need to start thinking about blended finance and we need to start thinking about the signals that we're giving to the market to scale up private investment. Um, and I think that's where nature-based solutions fit in. We need other, so we need to use, the government basically needs to consider the entire toolkit it has at its disposal to protect the environment. So not all environmental causes and, and issues can, can actually wait for markets to scale up. But if we're going to start mobilising finance at scale, I think nature-based solutions and creating markets around those will be incredibly critical to protecting the, the planet. You mentioned blended finance there, and I know, Tom, Palladium did a really interesting project, Revere, where you teamed up with UK National Parks to restore natural habitats with private capital. Can you tell us a little bit more about that frame, framework and the kind of responsibility for financing nature-based solutions? Hmm. I think blended finance on the investment side is, is part of the solution. It certainly helps to, to de-risk uh, the investment opportunities for private investors when you have, I don't know, first loss capital from government funding, for example. But um, 
I mean, that's only one part of it. Yeah, there, there needs to be a pipeline of, of risky things to invest in to <laughs> then reassure the private investors that they're not going to be as risky as they thought. And at the moment, those, I, that pipeline is not really there. And, um, and it's because we've gone through, we do, I, I would say there are kind of three phases to how nature has been financed in the UK. And for most of the time, uh, nature has been financed by government grants and charitable donations uh, to NGOs or to national park authorities. And um, so you get a slug of money and uh, you use that to protect wetland or create new woodland. And it hasn't, it, you know, hasn't really worked. Um, it's been massively overwhelmed by finance in the other direction for agricultural subsidies. And now we have a, a second phase, which has taken off in the last few years, which is um, that you can now um, value and monetize and, and trade ecosystem services like carbon credits or credits representing water quality or biodiversity, which is really exciting. And then, but still, fundamentally, what we're seeing is um, projects are now financed by government grants or charitable donations covering about 80 to 90% of the costs. But as a bonus, you can sell carbon credits which is fantastic. And maybe they'll cover your maintenance costs and generate a profit, great. Um, but if you, if you took away the government grants, the, the whole house of cards falls down immediately. Um, and so I think a lot of the noise in this sector at the moment uh, fails to acknowledge the fact that the government's still paying for nearly everything. Um, and, then, and then there's all of this language around private investment and nature-based solutions. And, um, and what it... Normally, what, when people talk about this, what they're incorrectly describing as investment is actually corporates buying carbon credits. Um, but that's, you know, those are customers. They're, they're buying your services or products. They're not actually investing the upfront capital required to, to make a project begin. That's still the government. So I would say the third phase of actually investing in nature-based solutions is to, to rethink completely how these projects are planned and managed, designed, financed, and... Um, and I think that's possible now because we, we can feel more secure in the fact that there is a market for these ecosystem services and you can generate revenues. So um, for me personally, I think this, this needs to end up looking like the same the things that bankers would be much more familiar with financing. So infrastructure projects, you, you would create a special purpose vehicle and instead of it being for a bridge or an office block, it's actually for 5,000 hectares of broadleaf woodland in, in Yorkshire and it requires 25 million pounds worth of capital up front that will be paid back over 10 years through a loan. And, um, and the revenues come from selling carbon credits, and you've got um, agreements with a portfolio of landowners. And it, it just starts looking a lot more like something that you would normally invest in. And then you can bring in the blended finance to say, OK, this, you know, investors are interested, but they're worried. Let's use some government money to de-risk it. Or let's use government money more wisely to uh, stabilize the revenue side in case the carbon market isn't uh, predictable enough. But, we need to move away from this, this reliance on upfront government grants, which really is, you know, it's never going to cover the 5.6 billion a year. I think in terms of that phase three, another thing we need to add in is how it's communicated, which is, you know, where a business like Sec Newgate and our Green and Good team come in. And the communication piece, I feel, is so important now because there is so much scepticism around about this. So Maggie, from your point of view, how can we combat that scepticism and lead that kind of journey of communication to investors and to the wider public? 
Well, I think to combat the scepticism, we need to face it head on because a certain amount of it is legitimate. And so to have nature-based solutions without decarbonising an economy is quite rightly labelled as greenwashing, as is nature-based solutions which might sequester carbon but lead to ecological harm. That's also greenwashing. And so unless we have a framework whereby we have safeguards in place uh, where nature-based solutions are not only preventing other types of harm but are providing co-benefits then that scepticism is going to continue and that's going to continue to be a barrier to investment as well. Um, the other element of it as well back to the kind of social justice uh, kind of conversation is that nature-based solutions or any kind of projects like this uh, take land and to look at this at a global scale the pressure on land is enormous and if you're looking at um, setting aside uh, areas, parcels of land to sequester carbon and that comes at the cost of other types of land use such as urbanisation or agricultural uses um, then you're just going to displace the pressure and you could inadvertently uh, lead to more carbon emissions from land use change elsewhere. So I think that beyond a communication piece there's actually uh, some work to be done around the framework on this um, and to, to put in place those safeguards which was another thing missing at COP and to have those safeguards you also need transparency and accountability and there's not necessarily frameworks for that either so there's quite a lot of different things which are missing before this can really reach its full potential and the potential is enormous the potential reaches beyond carbon it reaches beyond financial returns but there's lots of different dots which need to be need to be joined together and that you know can apply at a local scale a national scale or a global scale so i think that that's something which I'd really like to see a bit more focus on um, before we can say nature-based solutions is free of greenwash. Heather, from an E3G perspective, is that framework piece something that you guys are looking at, working on? Yeah, so some of my colleagues are following that really closely and I, I do completely agree as well. I think that for too long, offsets have been far too cheaply priced, um, so they don't incentivise actual action. Um, and they're low quality because there aren't clear guidelines on what is good and what isn't when it comes to an offset. So I feel like someone <laughs> in the audience is going to correct me on this, but there's like about three or four principles that um, offsets should basically follow for nature-based solutions. Um, additional, permanent, transparent and credible. And there probably is others, so correct me after. <laughs> but um, I, I think it speaks to what you're saying, that um, we need to really start to bulk out the accountability in this sector. Um, I think there's a couple of things going on in terms of offsets that are probably of interest to some of you in the audience. Um, then there's two major initiatives, um, and I'm going to get the names wrong, but the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative, which really focuses on the kind of demand side and, and limitations on how companies can reach net zero and the extent to which they can use offsets. And this is the one I always get wrong. The Integrity Critique Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> ICBCM, I think. Yeah, and that's. I've, I've yeah, revised all of those acronyms. Um, so, I mean, you can also tell the audience as well, but um, that, that one's really more on the supply side. And I think together, those are really interesting initiatives. And I think we need, basically, again, we can't have this vast proliferation of different standards that makes it even more of a headache than it was in the first place to understand what's good and what isn't. We need interoperability amongst standards and we need a common understanding of what is good and what isn't. And I think the, the final Sorry, thing yeah. I'll say is also that there's another aspect where you know um, if a company's buying a high quality offset but the, the damage that they've done is by knocking down Brazilian rainforest that was there for thousands of years and it's killing biodiversity, 
that's not a direct offset for the impact of that decision making or that, that supply chain. So I think we also need to extend those principles beyond mitigation and actually think about the whole of environment um, uh, impact of um, supply chain decisions. I'm Naomi Kerbel and you've been listening to Talking Cop from Bankers for Net Zero.